From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a sensitive balance, the responsibility to educate young people safely, even as some of those young people pose a threat. After a shooting at Denver's East High School, we look into safety plans and weigh the duty to educate versus the duty to protect. I believe it's better for that student to continue to engage in school, but with an appropriate level of supervision. Then we tee up the debate over the future of Denver's Park Hill Golf Course. Not everyone campaigning for and against a ballot measure has been a good sport. What the debate tells us about land use and open space statewide. And later, Real Talk, a show from us and Denver 7, hosts Nathan Heffel and Micah Smith have a preview. Leadership partners give $10,000 or more in support of Colorado Public Radio. CPR leadership partner, Maury Sussman. My wife, Ellen, and I recognize and support NPR's remarkable, in-depth news programming heard throughout the day. It adds greatly to the overall excellence of CPR. We are very pleased to assist CPR in remaining a strong member of the NPR family. Support CPR at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The shooting at East High School in Denver raises questions about why students who've had a history with guns are enrolled in traditional middle and high schools. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine has been investigating, along with others in our newsroom. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. And we'll talk about safety plans in a bit and a different incident involving a gun in a Denver school. First, though, our colleague Allison Sherry has been looking into the student who shot two administrators at East. Bring us up to speed, Jenny, on what CPR has learned. Allison found that 17-year-old Austin Lyle had been expelled from the Cherry Creek School District and had been on probation for a weapons charge after an AR-15-style rifle capped by a silencer with ammunition was found in his bedroom. After that, Lyle moved to Florida for a while. Jenny, um, you and Allison have both reported that he went to live with his mother. He then returned to Colorado to live with his father and enrolled at East. Yeah, and Lyle made good grades and was progressing on his probation. He was a bright student, interested in engineering. From the documents Allison received, Lyle was also a passionate advocate of the right to possess firearms. And a week prior to the shooting, Lyle was spotted with a gun on campus and fled. Lyle's father refused to let police search his bedroom, so there was no hard evidence that he possessed the gun on campus. Hmm. So Lyle returned to school. East High School officials agreed to let him stay on the condition that he was searched as part of a safety plan, which I invoked earlier. Uh, That's when last Wednesday during a pat down, he used a gun in his backpack to shoot two administrators who were injured. Jenny, the situation raises so many questions. Do we know why he was enrolled at East when he had a prior weapons violation? DPS Superintendent Alex Marrero in a press conference implied that districts have an obligation to educate every student who comes to their doors. However, Colorado law gives districts the right to refuse admission to students who've been expelled from another district within the previous year. And federal privacy laws prevent us from knowing more about Lyle's specific circumstances. And why DPS might not have invoked that power. 
Uh, But why a large comprehensive high school for a student who had a troubled background? I mean, are there other schools that could provide better support? It's important to explain there are different categories of schools. There are what are called facility schools, special schools many districts contract with for students with severe emotional, intellectual, or mental health disabilities. But these programs are for students with identified disabilities. And Lyle and another student we'll talk about who police say was involved in an attempted murder and who is now at a middle school, they may not have fit into those categories. What about pathway schools, Jenny? Those are alternative middle and high schools in the district. DPS has several of these for students who don't do well or didn't do well in regular schools. Many have substance abuse challenges, and some, I was told by a district official, have gun possession charges. So what factors determine whether someone like Austin Lyle goes to a smaller pathway school that may have more resources versus a traditional school? I've been unable to get a district answer on that so far. All right. Pam Bechea with Advocacy Denver, which advocates for children with disabilities, has told you that putting children who have a history of violence or exposure to guns together at a school that is said to be designed for children with disabilities is problematic. I personally believe that it's better for that student to continue to engage in school, to participate in the general education curriculum but with an appropriate level of supervision. Some argue putting troubled children into a regular school environment can be better for them. Tell us how a child gets onto a safety plan like the one Austin Lyle was on. First, DPS has something called a discipline matrix, and it classifies misconduct on six different levels. It lays out what's supposed to happen at each instance. All level five and level six incidents firearms, possession, arson, robbery, and some level fours like assault, those require a threat assessment of the student. How much risk do they pose? Does the student pose? Safety plans arise out of these threat assessments. Out of those assessments. And what's in a safety plan? It could involve pat-downs, such as checking pockets, backpacks, belts. What's more common is to check students for drugs or alcohol. And a plan may say, no backpack. It can detail the level of supervision, start date and end date for the plan, a space the student must go for the pat-down, that kind of thing. What stands out to you, Jenny, about DPS's discipline policies? DPS places a huge emphasis on, quote, disrupting bias and fighting disproportionality. So that means a student should be taken out of the classroom or school as a last resort after receiving various interventions in the discipline ladder. That message is throughout the policy. And do the data bear that out? Yeah, the number of expulsions, classroom removals, and referrals to law enforcement have dropped compared to the 2010s. So there is extraordinary pressure on schools to enroll students whom some may see as potentially dangerous. Tell us about McAuliffe Middle School. Nine News reported that a student who Denver police believe was arrested earlier this year in an attempted murder is enrolled at the Park Hill Middle School. When school staff learned about this crime, they tried to convince DPS administration to let the youth take online classes. A central office administrator denied the request. The school tried to expel him. And Nine News reported reporting showed DPS Central said because the student didn't possess a firearm on school grounds, he couldn't be expelled. They wrote, please return the student to school. 
Tell us about an incident at Bruce Randolph in February. A staff member there was arrested for possessing a loaded gun, but it could be that it was a student who'd brought the gun to school. Yeah, a student reported to a school security officer that he had a gun. The 15-year-old said he was upset because he'd been harassed online, according to a police report. When the officer tried to check his bag, the student ran. Surveillance video shows he stopped off in a room with a staff member who he was close to. When the officer caught up to the student, the student didn't have a gun on him. But later, the police returned to the school and a gun was found in the bag of Dante Quint, the school support staff member. The gun's magazine was fully loaded and that man was arrested. What do you know about this student? Apparently, the student had served time in the Gilliam Youth Services Center, a detention center, and enrolled in Bruce Randolph in January. So he was on a safety plan. He's isolated in a room and provided with lessons there, according to the teacher I spoke with. Uh, Here's 10th grade social studies teacher Doug Maylee. The parents will drop them off in the detention room. They get searched when they're in the detention room. They stay there all day and then not supposed to go to the restroom unescorted, but they're still in the building. And if the person who takes care of them that day isn't there, then it's chaos figuring out, okay, now who's in charge of this student today? He says sometimes things fall through the cracks and a student goes where he's not supposed to go. We do know that the student was back in school after the incident. And this has some teachers on edge. Uh, When a student is found with a weapon, they're supposed to be suspended for five days and then have what's called an expulsion hearing. There's nothing automatic anymore. It's like finding a loaded weapon is not enough to get a person expelled. And the way I understand it is once the OSS has happened, the out-of-school suspension, and we are required to continue schooling them until the expulsion proceeding is finished. He says the school had another incident in the fall where some students stole teachers' ID and allegedly used them to buy to try to buy guns. One student was charged and is now at a different school, and the other is back at Bruce Randolph. Uh, one thing the teacher said stuck out to me. The fact that so many guns are getting found before something happens, I think that's a positive sign that the The structures we have in place to report these are working. In other words, more students are reporting what they see and hear. But obviously, the problem is students bringing the guns to school. The teacher doesn't feel like his school administration is the problem. It's the pressure from central office to take kids who need more support. The district is the one that's pushing stuff back to us and making us try to figure it out. He says his friend, who's an administrator at East, says the same thing. Hmm. What are you hearing from other teachers? I'm hearing behaviorally. This has been one of the hardest years ever. Uh, They've told me, quote, there are no consequences for kids. And kids know that. There is nothing. We have nothing anymore that holds a student accountable. So we don't have a dress code. We don't have after school detention if a student skips. All we have is a robocall that calls their family. And so students will skip a class, have no consequences, and they'll just keep doing it because nothing happens. Students run away from uh, security and know that nothing's going to happen. You have to understand, following the district's discipline matrix takes an extraordinary amount of interventions, each of which must be documented. Teachers are already overloaded, and sometimes they just give up. The advocate for students with disabilities, Pam Bashaya, 
agrees with schools on this point. She says schools' requests for more support are ignored by central administration. We tried and couldn't get a response from DPS because of spring break. So everyone agrees that the system, not just the school system, is not getting these kids the support they need before and after tragic incidents. Here's Pam Bashaya. I'm sad that this youth brought a weapon to the school. I'm sad that he injured staff. I'm sad that when he left the campus, there wasn't a place that he identified that was a safe place for him to go and connect with a trusted adult. Jenny Brandine, what I am hearing fundamentally in your reporting is that there is a great tension between educating kids, keeping them at school, not quite at all costs, but close to, and then the question of accountability and consequences. And it sounds like that's an ongoing conversation in DPS. Definitely. It's been going on for decades. Thanks so much for being with us. CPR educate. Well, you can say thank you. Thank you. <laughs> CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, one of several CPR reporters looking into school safety after a shooting last week at Denver's East High School. We'll take a break. Then, when a golf course is so much more than a golf course, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. Everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com. Many cities have chunks of land they're not sure what to do with. The fate of one of those big open spaces in Denver is in front of voters. The decision they'll make illuminates a lot about the debate over green space versus housing, which we see in communities across Colorado. Kyle Harris from our sister site, Denverite, has been reporting on this ballot question. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Ryan. First off, what might other cities and towns listening right now learn from this proposal in Denver? Well, as these communities think about how to use their own land, I think that there is a very real chance that their fights could turn as messy as this one here in Denver. People feel incredibly strongly about how this land should be used. So the developer, the city itself, has come up with this uh, package with mixed-use development, retail, housing, and what they're saying is Denver's fourth largest park. Other people want all of this land, this former golf course, to be one giant park. Um, And recently we've learned that the developer, if they don't get their way in this upcoming election, they are considering putting a top golf in, which is a very late night, shiny, loud golf course. Golf course. What we are talking about is the site of the former Park Hill Golf Course in Denver. It's near I-70 in Colorado Boulevard. And just how messy, I think ugly is also a word we might use, has this gotten? How, how much are people divided over this? Well, last night I heard someone describe this as a civil war. It felt like a civil war. So people are militant and passionate on both sides. The opposition is furious that the developer and the city have been working together on this. This has been a big uh, Mayor Michael Hancock administration project. Some opponents have gone so far as to picket church services at St. Thomas's Episcopal Church. Uh, the, the reverend there has come out as a big supporter of it, Terry Hobart. One person screamed at her breathlessly for five minutes about their opposition to this project and why the church should not be involved. Um, 
you know, she also said that spit has literally been flying over this. People have actually been spitting on each other. Look at this. Opponents have accused faith communities, uh, Muslim faith communities, Christian faith communities who support the project of selling their souls to developers and to Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. And there's been a lot of name calling. And in fact, both sides have been accused of stealing each other's signs and literally lacking a moral compass. Uh, I was driving by the other day and part of the golf course has actually been graffitied. This whole thing has just been incredibly nasty. And to me, it's a really good reminder that we need to build up those muscles of discussion civic engagements disagreement with Mm. kindness the precise plan will still be worked on voters are deciding whether to allow development at all and that means technically they're deciding whether to lift a conservation easement Explain why that matters beyond Denver. So the the conservation easement is a cap on how the land can be used. And it's a tool that everyone from ranchers to private property owners to municipalities use to kind of protect how the land is is used. And there are a lot of people raising questions about how real these things are and how enforceable they are. It's called a perpetual conservation easement that the city uh, agreed to. Well, perpetual means ongoing. Yeah, Uh, there are ways out of it. And, you know, even the opponents who want to see this as a big park are talking about amending the conservation easement to get rid of the golf course requirement um, that mandates that the land be used that way. Okay, so the question of how perpetual is something that's perpetual uh, extends certainly beyond Denver. Well, why don't we listen to your reports on how kids imagine this land could be used? And then we're going to come back and chat more. So, again... Uh, This is Kyle Harris from Denverite. Sixth graders from the Denver Green School Northfield stomp across acres of dead grass. This is the old Park Hill Golf Course. It's just off traffic-y Colorado Boulevard and I-70. I want to skate park really bad over there. I also want like a community garden. Basketball and tennis courses. My name's Matt Sopranowitz. I'm a sixth grade literacy teacher at Denver Green School Northfield. Soprenowitz has brought his class here because he likes to teach lessons tied to current events. He's asked the students to think about the golf course as a blank canvas. In an effort to generate a utopian design of what this space could be for the community. Here's Will Freeman. Me and my group were thinking we could put like a big main plaza area as a centerpiece surrounded by like small mom-and-pop restaurants, and then housing on the far edges. Most of the kids want some sort of development. Vivian Barney is one of the few in the sixth grade class who wants the entire place to be a park. I ask her what features it should have. Slides. Maybe a cemetery. A cemetery? Yeah, a cemetery for the loved ones. Evan Wurst hits on the central political problem of what to do with this land. Designate it entirely as open space, which would keep temperatures cooler than concrete, or create housing and retail along with a park. And he acknowledges a lot of people in the community want to keep it as is. Other people need affordable housing. After the kids come up with their ideas, they go into the old golf course clubhouse. Waiting to meet them in a button-up shirt and slacks is Kenneth Ho. Kenneth is a principal investor with Westside, and he's going to be able to tell you a little bit about what they're doing on this project. Westside owns the land. Soprenowitz invited Ho to show the students how their utopian visions can fit with his plans, assuming voters allow the firm to build. 
It's planning a mix of housing, retail, and... In this plan, we're actually going to create the fourth largest park in the city. This meeting of the minds isn't just academic. The redevelopment plans have been in the works for a few years, and Denver Green School students have pitched ideas to the developers over time. Ho has included some of those concepts in the plans. It is so exciting to hear your creativity thinking about something that really impacts your community. Too often, young voices are not elevated or heard, even though you really will be the ones who will benefit uh, the most long-term from what happens on this site. For weeks, the students refine their ideas. They're eager to share their visions of the space with Ho and other developers, like Norman Harris. I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear you guys' presentation. Developers on the project watch sixth grader Elliot Curtis walk to the front of the room. In the way of housing, we thought that there should be a variety. Townhomes, apartments, condos, family homes. But all affordable. He's thinking bigger than Westside's current plan, which has just 25% as income restricted. Here's Vivian Howell. In this neighborhood, there is a problem with gentrification, and if we want to stop that, we need affordable and quality housing. I also think we should have different colors and shapes to represent that everyone is different in their own special way. May Marshall pitches some details the developer could incorporate for kids. There would be stoplights and fake streets where kids could bring a bike, scooter, and more to the park and practice the rules of the road. Leah Proctor has a vision for better food security. Seeing as a food desert is a really big problem in this community, there will be three fresh produce stores. That also goes beyond what Westside has planned. The firm promises space for one grocery store, though there's no guarantee that one will actually exist. Ho is excited about the possibilities the students see. I love that you guys think about this through the eyes of potential and what can happen. Voters have until April 4th to decide whether this land should be developed. The kids will be watching to see what the adults in the city decide. Kyle Harris there, who's in our studio. And um, Kyle, tell us more about what people opposed to development on this land in Denver want to do with it. Absolutely. They want to see more recreation. They want to see the the city stay cooler, though the tree canopy there is currently limited because it was a golf course. Um, They say there's a shortage of parks in the area, depending on where you are in the, the neighborhood that's more or less true. Um, People living nearby also want to preserve their mountain views. Uh, And I'll say some people want to see all affordable housing on the space and don't think that the current plan has enough. And they don't necessarily trust the developer. Uh, Many people have seen ugly development here in Denver. And so they're they're pretty soured on the idea of more dense housing. The developers have done some things that haven't made a lot of friends in the neighborhood, right? That is true. So Sisters of Color United for Education is a community group, a longtime community group. Um, They decided to set up shop in the clubhouse and they entered a lease with the developers. They put a ton of money into the facility and they say that they their use of the facility was actually curtailed by the developers. And so they are now in court uh, suing Westside and the Hollering Group, another developer on the project. There have been a lot of schemes for this land over the years. Uh, just briefly take us through them for you, Cole. Well, the land started out as a dairy farm for poor white 
male orphans. And then in the 1930s, it became a whites-only golf course. In the 60s, there was a fight over uh, integrating the golf course. And then over the years, you know, the Auraria campus downtown was considered for the land. The U.S. Mint in the 1970s was considered for the land. Wow. In the 80s, there were plans for a, another big development, uh, but a crash in the economy made that impossible. And so, you know, this space's future as a golf course has been debated for decades. In the late 90s, under the Webb administration, a conservation easement was put in place. Listening to you, it just amazes me how much the debate over this land in Denver has mirrored national and international issues. You think about uh, booms and busts, you know? Absolutely. You know, people argue over this land like the fate of the city you know, is is in jeopardy. They're believing that this can solve climate change, solve the affordable housing crisis. And I think all of that says a ton about our mentality of scarcity statewide. Kyle Harris there from Denverite. Thanks so much. Denver's Election Day is Tuesday. Too late, by the way, to drop your ballot in the mail. You can still use a Dropbox or vote in person. For way more about what's on Denver's ballot, check out denverite.com. There's a big election in Colorado Springs, too. Find that voter guide at krcc.org. This is Colorado Matters. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find Terra Firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Our mission is to tell Colorado's story, to have relevant conversations. And we have a new outlet for that. CPR News is partnering with Denver 7 on a new show called Real Talk. The co-hosts of this TV and radio endeavor are Nathan Heffel, the voice of CPR's All Things Considered Locally. Hi, Nathan. Hello. And Denver 7 anchor and social equity reporter, Micah Smith. Hi, Micah. Hi. Nathan, what's the inspiration for this show? Oh, my gosh. It has been a labor of love for Micah and I to really collaborate on a new program where we can lift up stories of people that we don't typically hear from. Hmm. Um, People of color, LGBTQ plus community, stories that we really can go in depth with more so than let's say a typical TV uh, feature and, and also collaborate that on the radio as well. It's such a unique thing that's not been done with CPR News in Denver 7 before this collaboration. So it's really exciting. Micah, Colorado Matters listeners may recognize your voice as an MC for one of our previous (laughs) holiday extravaganzas. That's how I met you. And at the time, I recall you sharing a story about your work uh, helping facilitate an example, I think, of, of restorative justice, where victim and perpetrator try to come to a place of understanding that has just stuck with me. What, what do you hope to share with Real Talk, and how does it relate to your work as a social equity reporter, you think? I just hope to share more real stories with Real Talk and really have the time to go in-depth. A lot of times in TV, a lot is left on the cutting room floor, and this is an opportunity to pick up those pieces and present it to our viewers, to our listeners for a more holistic form of storytelling. So I'm really excited about that. And in terms of my social equity reporting, I consider this an extension of the kinds of stories I'm already telling, and I'm really excited about that because 
it's a different platform and it's a different format. So I'm excited to see how this all comes together. You know, this notion of real, I appreciate it because the press sometimes has a tendency to hear from the same people, right? Like we don't really use Rolodexes anymore, but just the notion that when news breaks, you call up the person who you know and who will be available. And it's a real... Uh, opportunity, but also challenge to say, no, we're going to hear from someone we haven't heard before. You know, do you guys feel that? No, completely. I think that's exactly right. And I think even the way we ask the questions, we're not so formulaic. If, if a question comes to mind and it's like, gosh, we're going to ask it that way and have a real honest conversation that isn't just, you know, checking off the boxes to get an answer for a story that people can listen to we or, or, or view, we really want to open up and be raw with people and, and make it a safe space for people to share their stories. Absolutely. I think oftentimes we get a soundbite. Let's say we're talking to someone who's an expert on homelessness and mm-hmm. they tell us all the statistics. But the part of the soundbite I usually have to cut out is I was homeless. And I was homeless for this long. And this was my real experience. And this is how it shaped my policy because we're focused on the bigger picture and we have this time constraint. So through Real Talk, we're able to go ahead and go down that rabbit hole, right? And and continue the real conversation. Well, why don't we dip into the first episode? Micah, you spoke with Deanie Hodge, a former East High School student who several times brought a gun to school, flying under the radar. Uh, Also with Jason McBride, who's with the Struggle of Love Foundation. Part of this whole thing with with kids and guns and and violence is we need to start listening to our kids. We go to all these meetings and and we go to these, um, you know, events that they have where we're talking about youth safety, we're talking about kids, but no kids are there to talk about it themselves. You know, Deanie went through these kind of things. I can I can go to Deanie and ask him, like, look, um, how did you feel in these circumstances, situations or circumstances? And he can give me insight on that. And that helps me with some of these kids these days. So we we just need to listen to our children. We've raised them to be smart. Let's listen to them. That's that's what we have to start doing. And Deanie also said that it was like a father figure, that SRO. Right. But again, it, there, there may be a, an SRO who's not. Right. A father figure. And that's the one who's giving tickets. Yep. Well, I have to agree because there is some people that are just, hey, they treat kids very bad sometimes, you know, and try to make it, make make their life harder and they don't know what they're going through at home or what they're dealing with in the school. Like, you have to be that uh, helping support for that kid to, to even keep going forward in the education system and to not get a ticket, you know, like push them forward, not backwards. SRO, a school resource officer, a really timely discussion. Micah, what resonated or maybe surprised you about that conversation? I was a little bit surprised, honestly, to hear Deanie say that he had that great relationship with a school resource officer who he really respected, and yet he still felt the need to bring a weapon to school. And I guess I was a little bit caught off guard because we, in these conversations, I hear a lot of adults say it's either this or that. Right. If we have SROs, our school will be safer. Our students will feel safer and we won't have these weapons. But we heard Dini say, well, I appreciated the SRO, but I brought a weapon to school. Mm. We heard recently on this program that some kids bring weapons to school, not so much for use on campus, but because they don't feel safe walking home uh, as a means of self-defense. 
Why don't we hear one more snippet of the show? Nathan, you explore renters' rights. That's also in the zeitgeist. Who did you hear from? Yeah, well, we spoke with Bruno Tapia Garcia of Denver Aurora Renters' Rights. And the story of Cedar run apartments is just crazy. So this apartment complex has you know hundreds of people living there. And during that big cold snap where the temperatures dipped well below zero, they had no hot water. They had no heat. And so there were people living there who were like, didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't know their neighbors were, were dealing with this. So they were basically dealing in silence. And finally, they decided to come together as, as essentially a, a, a mini union, right? And they protested and they were demanding that people listen to them because it wasn't just the lack of heat and the lack of water. It was black mold. It was, uh, you know, flooding. asbestos flooding. Yeah. And they were all dealing with this in silence because, again, in apartments, we found out that you don't really talk to your neighbor too often, mm. right? So what went into getting these residents to band together uh, and to say, this isn't, this isn't okay? Yeah, I think the most important part of these tenants coming together and really any tenants coming together is talking to each other and learning that they're not alone. I think people very often uh, sort of deal with the issues that they have alone and they think that it's just them. They just kind of live with it because they don't have a much options, right? They don't want to lose the housing they already have. Absolutely. Um, We did see that there are small changes happening. But talk about what's next for these residents. I think it's really important to continue to organize the entire building uh, because the more tenants that you have involved in the tenants union, the more power you have. Right. Um, And at the end of the day, the situation uh, that tenants are put in is they're completely removed of the power over their own homes, right? They're paying so much in rent. They're paying these enormous amounts. Most tenants in Colorado pay more than uh, 30% of their income to their rent. <laughs> and um, and the landlord has all the say in what their living conditions like and their ability to live, live safe and healthy lives. So, And like I've heard over and over, tenants don't know what they don't know. And it's not just the residents of Cedar Run who you've reached out to. Uh, Who else have you been working with? Yeah, we've worked with tenants uh, both in Denver and Aurora who are are experiencing a myriad of issues. We had one building where tenants were uh, on short notice, given notice to leave their Mm. building um, and started getting threatened with eviction for the entire building because the owner wanted to sell the building. Um, they actually cut off their hot water and their hot, um, their heat, uh, to get them to leave. Renters rights, the focus of that discussion in the new program, Real Talk. Uh, Nathan, how about a hint of some of the stories you'll share in future episodes? And Micah, I'm interested in what you're looking forward to, too. (laughs) Well, I want to hear from Micah. You know, what are some of the exciting things that that we're working on? I know we're working on outdoor accessibility and and getting people into the outdoors. Um, I know there's a couple shows that we're working on there, but it really is exciting that this is such a new collaboration that we can really just shoot for the sky, right? Absolutely. And I'm excited to introduce our listeners and viewers to Coloradans out here doing everyday things, but in an incredible way. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a big old tease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? But I think we could all use an injection of inspiration, Micah. Absolutely. So I'm happy to have a big tease like that. <laughs> Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Micah Smith is an anchor and social equity reporter at Denver 7. CPR's Nathan Heffel is senior host of All Things Considered Locally. They co-host the new show Real Talk. 
It premieres tomorrow on CPR News, 3.30 Friday afternoons and 6.30 Monday evenings. And you can watch the show on Denver 7, Saturday mornings at 5.30 and Sunday afternoons at 5.30. Be right back. The humble donkey is central to Colorado's early mining history. The tough, sure-footed little animals carried millions of dollars in gold and silver out of mines on steep, narrow trails. Miners wrote stories and songs about trusted burrows like Prunes, whose monument still stands on Fair Play's Front Street. He arrived in the 1860s and became one of the most reliable and recognizable burrows in South Park. After decades of hard work, Prunes retired, free to roam about town. Residents gave him affection and his favorite food, flapjacks. In 1930, a blizzard trapped the aging donkey in a shed for days. Prunes was rescued, but never fully recovered. In front of weeping miners, Prunes was put down. He was 63. A year later, his heartbroken owner followed. After a deathbed request to have his ashes buried next to Prunes, the beloved burrow of Fairplay. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble. Denver recently donated 30 important animals to indigenous tribes. Denverite's Isaac Vargas was there. That's the sound of bison rushing into a trailer bound for the northern Arapaho Nation on Wyoming's Wind River Indian Reservation. Denver owns two buffalo herds of about 60 bison each. In the past, when the herds had babies, the city would auction them to the highest bidder. But that changed when William Tallbull of the Tallbull Memorial Council developed a relationship with Denver Parks and Recreation's Scott Gilmore. With Scott being there, we were able to sit down and, and, and sit at the table with the Denver Mountain Parks and be able to share them with them a little bit about our story. They pitched the idea to Denver City Council, who then passed an ordinance to donate bison from the city to American Indian tribes. The current agreement runs until 2030 according to Gilmore. I don't know of any other city that can do this. Who owns bison? You can't do something that you don't have. The federal government has been trying to do this for a long time. But as a city, we have a lot more flexibility. Members of the American Indian Commission, like Danielle Seawalker, say it symbolizes a reunification of their bison relatives to the indigenous communities that once lived in close harmony for generations. The Lakota people are, we're Buffalo Nation, where we consider them our relatives, our four-legged relatives. Wherever they went is where we went, and so they're really centric to our culture and our identity and our belief systems. William Talbull believes these transfers will have a ripple effect on other indigenous communities. Bring back bison to our culture, to our tradition, back to Native people where they belong. So what we're doing here today is it's affecting other Native people as well. It's bridging the educational gap. This year's transfer includes 17 bison to the Northern Arapaho Tribe, 12 to the Eastern Shoshone Tribe, and one to the Talbo Memorial Council. Including this year, the city has transferred a total of 85 buffalo to tribes in the area. The buffalo are part of the land, and so this action allows us to honor that land acknowledgement with action, not just with words. I'm Isaac Vargas, Denbright. Indigenous people knew about Yellowstone, 
long before it became America's first national park, just over 150 years ago. Historian and author Megan Kate Nelson writes about an early expedition to the region and its lasting impact. Her book is Saving Yellowstone. She grew up, by the way, in the Denver area. We spoke in July. Megan, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's go back 150 years or so when Congress commissions a scientific expedition to Yellowstone, led by a prominent surveyor and scientist named Ferdinand Hayden. Uh, He takes about three dozen men and sets off from Ogden, Utah in 1871. Let me have you read this description of what they saw as they arrived. The path pitched more steeply upward. As the expedition came over the crest, the men stopped one by one. Before them rose a huge complex of hot springs, 300 feet high and at least half a mile wide. It looked like a frozen waterfall. It was bright white in places because as the scientists on Hayden's team would determine later, it was made of travertine, a calcium carbonate rock that is the primary compound in limestone. Hot water forced to the surface at the top of the structure made its way down through hundreds of oval pools, pausing briefly in one before dropping to the next. The bacteria and algae living within the pools stained them bright pink, yellow, brown, or red. After gazing upon this marvel, the leader of the second cavalry escort, Captain George Taylor, reached into his pocket, groping for his diary so he could record his first impressions. He had left it with the pack train, however, so all he could do was stare. After a moment, Hayden turned to Taylor. I have traveled all over the world, he told the soldier. I have been exploring 17 years. I thought I had viewed all the great wonders, Hayden paused, but all sink into insignificance compared with this. Oh, I I get the impression from that passage that they might have thought this was an otherworldly place. Absolutely. I mean, there were so many rumors about Yellowstone. They referred to it as the Plutonic region. There was a lot of reportage that maybe it was where hell bubbled up. And this was an exciting moment, particularly for Hayden, because no white man had ever seen or reported on this particular feature of Yellowstone, which we now know of as Mammoth Hot Springs, but which they called the White Mountain. And so for him, This was one place in Yellowstone where he was really going to make his mark. And for a man as ambitious as Hayden, uh, that was an important moment. You use this adjective plutonic, meaning of or related to Pluto. In other words, yeah, in otherworldly terms. But of course, this region was not entirely unknown. Uh, Who all had been there before the white man? Well, of course, indigenous peoples had been in and through Yellowstone for thousands of years, Uh, peoples including uh, the Crow and the Shoshone and the Bannock, the Lakota peoples, the Nez Perce from the West um, and the Northern Shoshone. And they had used it as a thoroughfare. They had used it as a ceremonial ground, as a hunting ground, basically in any way that you could use a landscape to subsist yourself. So indigenous peoples had known about Yellowstone. They claimed Yellowstone. It was not given over to one indigenous nation specifically, but a kind of communal shared space 
Of course, they all knew about it. And some white trappers um, early in the 19th century also had discovered it, but no one believed any of their tales because, you know, people believed trappers and and scouts to be just inveterate liars, that they were just telling tall tales around the fire. And and who would have believed it, right? I mean, cliffs made of glass and water exploding from the ground and boiling mud pots. I mean, it seemed just completely insane. (laughs) Um, This expedition happens at a really pivotal time in the United States, and that's the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. It's just plain fascinating to me that you've decided to focus on the West in Reconstruction, because I think of it as such a, a Southern experience. Why is this expedition reflective of Reconstruction, maybe in a way that we wouldn't normally associate with it? Yeah, this was one of the driving questions for me in my research, because once I I decided to write about Yellowstone for its 150th anniversary, I thought, well, wait a minute, all of this exploration is happening and the preservation of Yellowstone is happening in 1871-72, which is this pivotal moment in Reconstruction. And no one ever talks about that, right? I mean, uh, when we talk about Reconstruction, if we talk about it at all, we are talking about the South uh, for good reason, because, you know, the nation is trying to come back together after four years of really destructive warfare and huge loss of life. And the major part of that project was bringing the former Confederate states back into the Union and making sure that its four million newly emancipated Black Americans could actually claim their new citizenship rights and really transition to a life in freedom. But the federal government was just as invested in controlling the West during Reconstruction as they were in controlling the South. And that's what really interested me uh, in looking at Yellowstone was here's this new place where we can get a real new angle of vision on this moment in our history when the federal government is really testing the reach of its power Mm. um, all across the nation and trying to bring the country back together. But isn't there an inherent tension then in the freeing of enslaved people in the South? And yet, uh, of course, the subjugation of indigenous people in the West, it's like these this tension in the country. Absolutely. And I think this is the tension that we find today so difficult to reconcile, right? Because we think, oh, well, a political party that is invested in protecting Black civil rights and intent upon really using the power of the federal government to protect those rights if the states fail in that respect, surely they wouldn't turn around and launch campaigns against Native people and try to take their land from them, right? This strikes us as completely contradictory. But in that moment, Republicans who, and it's important to note that the parties were kind of switched at this point from how we know them today. So Republicans uh, were very much invested in the power of the federal government. Uh, They were at least for a short amount of time devoted to racial justice in certain aspects. And they were, like most white Americans, um, completely convinced that Native peoples, first of all, were not citizens and probably could never be citizens, and that they were standing in the way of American progress. They were standing in the way of the American dream, which they believe now belonged to both white and black Americans, Mm. right? So they did not see any kind of contradiction in fighting for black rights, but then also seeking to remove native people from their homelands, put them on reservations, 
and then shrink the size of those reservations in order to sell land to both white and black settlers. So Yellowstone, to some extent, represents destiny, perhaps manifest destiny. Does the Hayden expedition go to Yellowstone with the notion of preserving it, of, of you know, making it a park? Is all that notion of conservation baked into the expedition? Not really, and not from the beginning. I mean, Hayden was definitely a scientist and explorer. Uh, and what surveys were, were these expeditions that were federally funded. And they would go out to certain parts of the country that had not yet been mapped. And they would measure distances, they would test water, they would look at resources, they would produce agricultural reports. And the goal of these surveys was really to figure out how this land could best be used. Mm. And so Hayden had that kind of practical job, and that was in fact in his instructions from the Department of the Interior, that he was supposed to figure out uh, how this land could be developed, not only what was in Yellowstone, but if any of it could be mined, um, you know, ranched or farmed. And then he had that other goal in mind, which was to bring Yellowstone really fully into the American scientific arena of knowledge um, so that they could see what was there and fit it into a kind of larger notion of both North America's and then the world's larger geo history. Hmm. Um, So he was interested in the science, but his expedition did not have a conservation purpose uh, in the beginning. Well, before we go, We mentioned in the introduction that you grew up here in Colorado, attended Littleton High School. You spoke recently about your book at the Tattered Cover, and we were actually in the audience for that when you shouted out one of your English teachers. Who was there? Marlis Farrell. And after the event, I asked her about you as a student, and and she recalled this moment. She and some other kids were helping the class review for a major exam and they created a Jeopardy format that was hilarious. I mean, she always had a great sense of humor in everything that she did, even though she was very academic and and very scholarly in her analysis of literature and characters and so forth. She loved posing questions to engage an audience and to create fun. This made me wonder if you think there's enough room in the study of history for humor. <laughs> oh, well, I certainly hope so. That's a, that's such a wonderful thing for her to say. I love Mrs. Farrell. Yes, the, the book is dedicated to her and to Ann Moore, who is my history teacher at Littleton High School. And those two women really encouraged me in my writing and my thinking. And yes, and they are both extremely funny individuals as well, which I I enjoy. So I like it when my historical figures, the people I'm writing about are funny, that that allows me to engage with them and their senses of humor. It is hard though, to make any kind of jokes about very serious topics, issues of racial justice and the sort of darker histories of places we might want to take a little bit more lightly. But I also think that we can understand the really complex and interesting histories of places like Yellowstone 
and continue to enjoy them. I know now all about these dark and complicated elements of Yellowstone's history, and yet I go there and I still revel in it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Historian Megan Kate Nelson, author of Saving Yellowstone, Smithsonian Magazine named it a best history book of 2022. And that's our show for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.